0: Hi, my name is Joyce. I'm alcoholic. My sobriety is April 24th, 2005. I have a sponsor and my home group is the Midtown Group. We meet on Sunday nights at 7.30 at uh, Walter Johnson High School in Bethesda. Uh, thank you so much, um, Crystal, for being an awesome host. She hasn't been, near, been around me enough. No one I know would ever describe me as calm and serene. <laughs> so, <laughs> Just hang around me for another 24 hours. Um, But I I just really want to thank Merv and the committee for asking me to come out and share. This is an unbelievable honor. I I truly feel inadequate and totally self-centered about it. Um, I feel privileged to be speaking on on such a a great uh, ticket of of speakers. And um, I know how much work and planning goes into these conventions and, and conferences. So I really thank you all for the services because... Um, These going to conferences was such a big part of my early sobriety. I mean, it absolutely changed the trajectory of my spiritual path. And um, and I'm so happy to be down here in Charlottesville. I've gotten to reconnect with several friends that have been a part of my spiritual journey throughout my sobriety and I've known for for years. And so it's kind of, it always feels like an AA reunion, you know, when we we get together. Um, And I do want to give a special shout out to you know, Ralph and Debbie, uh, you know, when I was new, I I was like, I love conferences, I love speakers, circuit speakers, and all these CDs that I would listen to, and I didn't realize they are like, real people with real lives, you know? (laughs) Just, I thought this was, like, their full-time job, traveling around, and, you know, now, obviously, growing up a little bit, maturing, and, and and being asked to do this stuff, like, especially coming across the country, I mean, what an amazing service and sacrifice, so I really do thank you, and I I can't wait to, to hear you both, um. So that's enough about everybody else, let's talk about me. Uh, this is also the afternoon speaking ticket is the toughest one. So they got the loud Jersey fast talker girl, you know what I mean? Keep you guys awake. That, you know, this is usually nap time in a conference, you know, the bowl. So, um, but I'm going to tell you in a general way what I was like, what happened, and how I try to live today. Um, my story starts, I was born and raised uh, in Jersey City, New Jersey. I came from a family of drunks. Uh, neither of those things make me alcoholic but it gave me a, a good landscape to, to grow into one. You know, I, uh, I, I my earliest memories were of insanity. I mean, drunken fights, drunk driving, shoveling kids in a room, slamming the doors, waking up the next morning, cleaning up the mess, the I'm sorry's, the crying. And, uh, and my, my first experience with... Alcohol was, um, you know, I hated it. I was like, I'm never going to be like these people. I'm never going to be like my father. I, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show them I can be different. You know, I, I, I absolutely hated it. Um, but I also identify with what I've heard in Alcoholics Anonymous is this spiritual malady. You know, before I ever picked up a drink, I am convinced that I was not wired correctly. You know, I'm someone who uh, suffered a great deal of uh, that self-centered fear and I didn't have vocab words like that, you know, I could just tell you that I felt uh, awkward, uncomfortable, disconnected, I was terrified of people, I was c- totally consumed with what you thought about me. Uh, I-, I was constantly performing whatever version of Joyce you needed to see or to, who you wanted me to be, and um, just so anxious and wound very, very tight. You know, so my, you know, I'm taking sips and swigs of liquor when you grow up in a house like that and you run, you run the drinks and take a little bit off the top and I, nothing ever, you know, I never, no, no profound effect, you know, my first real drunk though, I always tell this story because it really summarizes my relationship with alcohol and it also was, you know, would be the blueprint for the next eight, nine years Um, and it was the summer of fifth grade I was, up until this point, I was a nerd and a loser. You know, I came from a first-generation first Filipino-American, so I came from a foreign family. They were always cooking weird foods and buying me Kmart clothes. And You know what I mean? I was just so nerdy. I was an eczema baby, an asthma baby. You know, I had, mean? like, inhalers and rashes, you know, I mean, rainbow rim thick glasses. Just didn't stand a chance to be cool or accepted, you know? <laughs> And so, you know, you got my anxious disposition, and then you got all these outside circumstances, and I'm a mess, you know? And my first obsession was this boy named Jason,
1: you know? And Jason
0: was this cool, punk kid dealing dime bags on the corner, you know? And I know I, I see some of you out there that you wore Jason, and, uh, you know, just so cool. And I sweated him, you know? I mean, I stalked him real good. Laughter Followed him around, you know. Memorized his school schedule. Memorized his phone number. Uh, still today, I, I know it by heart. Seven three two five nine one three four zero. Don't call it. I still think his parents live there. Uh, carved his name on my arm. You know what I mean? Like psycho, lifetime movie killer. Um, so Jason, I knew was going to be the first th- outside thing that was going to fix me. You know, and I and he, I knew he drank, and so I invited him over. You know, we had just moved into this town called Oldbridge. And uh, my dad had built this bar in our basement, and it was fully stocked. And I said, why don't you come over, and you you can drink in my house. And so here's my moment, you know, the moment in every teen movie where that loser girl becomes popular. And this was it. You know, I had social intentions for my first drink. But the problem is, is that I have an abnormal relationship with alcohol. And um, so Jason came over, he broke my heart because I opened the door and there was a really popular girl with him, you know, I know. And so we go downstairs, I'm like twitching and the committee in my head is up and loud and on like it always is. You're a loser, laugh, don't laugh, you're sweating, you're shaking, you know, calm down, take a breath, don't breathe too hard, you know. So this constant dialogue is going on and I can hardly hear what people are saying because of these voices in my head. And I grabbed the first bottle that I saw, which was a Johnny Walker Black Label, and uh, I, I know, it was a beautiful thing. And uh, I, poured, I poured a couple glasses, and what transpired in the next 5, 10, 15 minutes is what makes me alcoholic, you know, is that I drank that stuff down, it hit my stomach, it rose to my head, and it shut it up, you know. And for the first time in my life, I could breathe. You know, I could just be. And I drank a little bit more, and I felt totally equal with everybody else around me. And I never felt that way. You know, and I drank a little bit more, and I felt a lot better than everybody else. And I, and I was like, this guy is actually a loser, you know. And so here I am, you know, onto my next, you know, onto my next glass and next glass. And what I didn't realize until I really worked with the sponsor is on that very first night, you know, I experienced that phenomenon of craving. You know, one was not enough, and, and that, that feeling was so magical. I needed and wanted more. And, um, and that beast woke up. And I ended up kicking him and that girl, Avery, out of my house. And it was just me and Johnny Walker, you know, a three-year obsession just like that. You know, and that is the magic of alcohol. And from that moment, I mean, you could have, it was like Cinderella, you know. You could have just spun some fairy dust and twirled me around because I transformed into another human being. You know, I, that loser, nerd, awkward girl turned into life of the party. And, and I loved it, you know, no one had to teach me or coach me how to drink. It was like, here it is. I found it. I can't believe I waited this long, you know, and, um, and I, and so, and that's what started happening. I started going down there to the basement before school, taking water bottles of liquor at a time. And then I started taking handles of liquor at a time because no one noticed, you know, and I loved it. I, you know, I started being the girl who could bring it to every party, every get-together, and it was awesome. The first several years of my drinking, you know, as a weekend warrior, we'd have awesome house parties. We'd get in the tr- on the train, go up to New York and party. And I loved, you know, I loved everything about it, my reputation, that Joyce doesn't care, she doesn't give a damn, I was like crazy Joyce, and like I'd be crazy Joyce later, but this is like crazy fun Joyce, you know, part one, and um, so I was getting high fives, and just the bigger and bigger my ego got, you know, and it just, it made life easier. You know, it made sense, and um, and soon I would discover that morning drink and, and that nightcap, you know, because someone like me, when you're wound this tight and you have this hostile mind that's, you know, replaying the days and all the things that I said and should have said, when I drank, it just went away, you know, and I didn't realize that this stuff was abnormal. I didn't realize that people didn't have this relationship, you know, I remember going to the park and... A uh, bunch of kids bring, you know, wine coolers from their house trying to catch a buzz, and I'm checking proofs, you know? I'm trying to grab Bacardi or whatever had the highest proof in the house, and so then I can bring that with me. I was the type of drunk that, you know, whenever, wherever I went, whatever party, whatever get-together, I was constantly assessing, would there be enough? You know, I'm doing math in my head, you know? I was afraid of running out. I was hoarding and hogging and hiding bottles because I didn't want to share my, my portion. And, uh, and, again, I didn't realize these were, like, early red flags. You know, I had my first intervention. Two years later, chair circled up, someone crying at me, someone yelling at me, someone telling me, you know, that I have a problem and all of that. You know, and it was the first time that I was confronted with my drinking. And it was also the first time that I learned how to produce that lip service. You know, I'll say whatever you need me to say to get you off my back. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a type of alcoholic, I could cry on command, you know, I'm, I'm a platinum victim card holder, you know what I mean? Like, I can give you a list of, of poor joy stories to make you feel sorry and, and redirect the problem, and it's not me, it's my dad, or it's my family, or it's we're poor, or it's because we're brown, or whatever version of, 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 you know, narrative that you need to hear to not make it about my drinking. You know, and that's what I began to do. I got sent to substance abuse counseling and therapists, and that was the beginning of that merry-go-around you know, ride of, you know, what's wrong with Joyce? And um, it also was the beginning of me trying to control and enjoy my drinking, you know. And a couple, uh, within the next year, I had my first kind of coming-to moment of clarity, you know, and it was my first real blackout. Um, Prior to that, I'd been a brownout drinker. You know, lose track of some hours of the night, but I'd never really blacked out where you're like fully operational, no one's home. You know, and uh, I came to the next morning. I was naked, bleeding, bruised, and I experienced what our literature talks about is that incomprehensible demoralization. You know, where I hated myself. And I was humiliated. You know, those four hideous horsemen were on me in terror, bewilderment, frustration, despair. You know, just not knowing where I was, where my clothes were, who I'd been with, what happened to me. And uh, I'll never forget, you know. I mean, crawling around that apartment trying to find pieces of mail to see, you know, what zip code am I in. And, uh, you know, making my way back home and uh, sobbing and crying in a fetal position the shower trying to scrub the filth off me. You know, and um, if you're a woman here, you maybe have been in this situation, you know, and I remember swearing up and down, crying in that shower, saying, I'm never going to do that again. I am never going to put myself in that position again. And a little bit time goes by, and the hallmark feature of this alcoholic is this insane mind, you know, that I have this head that can't retain, it can't remember the pain and suffering of that drunk. You know, I just, all of a sudden it was like, oh, well, someone maybe slipped me something. Or I didn't eat enough before I went out. And i just come up with some rationalization about why it's going to be different this time. You know, and that's what started to happen for the next several years, is that I was became obsessed with what is the right combination so that I can go out, have a good time, and not have any problems. You know, and um, I'll give you some examples. And, You know, I started switching brands. You know, if I went from dark liquor to clear liquor to beer, I picked up all other substances. If I snort this or eat this before I start drinking, then maybe I won't black out as much. You know, I started assigning babysitters, you know, that you're in charge of me tonight, okay? Don't lose me. Make sure i make it home. You know, bodyguards. um, I tried the counting method, right? I was convinced if I could just keep it to, like, six drinks, then I'd be okay. Um, Then I would lose track when I was drunk, so then I, you know, then I started carrying around a Sharpie, and then I would make tallies on my arm, you know, during. And that's a terrible experiment. I woke up the next morning with just drawn all over, you know. Uh, I was a, I was a runner. I'm somebody who gets drunk and lost all the time. I just get in cars with people. I just wander away from everyone. So I started putting my address on my forearm so people could just return me to sender, you know. I mean, these were the solutions that I came up to with, you know. I was losing clothes, you know, I mean, a lot of the females and maybe the men, you know, it's like, forget, I'd lose articles of clothing or shoes, so I just started packing a book bag, you know, like, all right, well, this is my, my second set, you know, and, um, these were the answers, and, and on and off, you know, I mean, and, and I started, you know, some of that was, some of it was funny, and some of it was tragic and depressing, um, and for, for the people around me who had to, people who loved and trusted and cared for me and, and really wanted to help me, it was terrible to watch. You know, um, I went, I went to, I tried outside help. You know, I, like I said, there well-intentioned doctors and therapists that tried to help. Um, I went to Jesus Camp. And, you know, I grew up in a a devout Roman Catholic uh, family. My mother went to church every Sunday, did rosaries for me on Mondays, and they sent me to Jesus camp to to go get saved and maybe become a Franciscan nun. And this stuff moved me, you know what I mean? I remember I went to inner peace camp one time, right, where I, like, would primal scream in the woods and and hit trees with foam noodles, uh, reenacting my childhood finding my inner child. And... And I I would come back from these retreats and these camps and these programs and I would have resolve, you know. I knew that there was something broken in me. I didn't think it was drinking. I thought I was crazy. I thought it was all this stuff from my childhood. Uh, And I would come back with, with, you know, I have a whole library of self-help books and I would have all this information, all this knowledge, and I would think, I know myself now. I'm not going to drink again. And one week goes by, two weeks goes by, And something in me begins to tighten, you know? And if you're an alcoholic of my type, of the hopeless variety, you know, this is where we return to drinking because drinking is not my problem. You know, Joyce is my problem. Being in my own skin, having to live life on life's terms and operate in the sandbox with the rest of you all, that's my problem. I have no tools for living, you know? And I'm so self-centered and selfish and you know paralyzed by fear and I start getting wound tighter and tighter and tighter and to everybody on the outside they think Joyce you're doing great you know what I mean you haven't drank in two weeks in three weeks in one month you're doing awesome, you know? And I could put on a smile and act like everything's fine for a little while, but eventually, you know, I start acting like a bitch. And then all of a sudden, everything's irritating, you know? It's everyone else's problems, and people are like, what, are you drinking? Are you drinking? You know, I'm not drinking, you know? And I just feel like, I feel crazy, you know? I feel crazy, and I can't explain. And people ask me, and this was the question that haunted me my whole life, is what's wrong? What's wrong? Why? You know, these questions that I did not have a sufficient answer to. I can't explain what's wrong, you know, and that's the problem. But I know what fixes it is I take a couple drinks and then nothing's wrong. And that's, that's, the, that's the trap that I was caught in over and over and over again, you know. And, and um, I'm going to summarize the last couple years of my drinking. Um, I, a major turning point in my drinking is my mother had a brain aneurysm and died in 2001. And, you know, I always mention that because it was a major turning point in my life, in my drinking, because my mother was the only sane, kind of good example that I had. You know, she you know, um, she was a, a regulator, and she was always pulling me back. I mean, so many morning afters, you know, seeing her at the kitchen table, heartbroken, crying. And, you know, deep down inside, I didn't want to break my mother's heart. You know, deep down inside, I wasn't trying to run her over or bully her or be abusive towards her, you know, she was collateral damage, and, you know, when she passed away suddenly, the guilt and shame that I felt, I mean, ate me up alive, and it was the most solemn oath I ever made, you know, I swore on her grave that I'm not going to drink again, you know, there were no more I'm sorry's, there no no more I'm going to be different this time, you know, she drank in the middle of of, of my drinking, and I swore that I was going to be the daughter that she deserved. You know, and literally two days later I'm drunk again. And that was the biggest demonstration that no matter how great the necessity or wish that I could not overcome drinking on my own. And another reason I also mentioned it because uh, it really escalated my drinking. You know, the last four years I was in Jersey, it was me and my drunken father, and we lived together, and it was just him and I, so we drank around the clock, beat each other up, and it was um, a dark time. You know, and it also gave me a license to feel totally untouchable because if you lived in this house with this man, then you'd drink this way too. You know, no one could question me or attack me on how I was living because I had this, you know... This excuse, and you know, it was his problem. It was my family's problem. Now I got a dead mother, and that's the problem. And it was always—it gave me more ammunition for why Joyce isn't the problem, you know. And at the end of that four years, I was—I wanted to get out of there. I just thought I needed to start over somewhere else. So I moved down to DC. You know, I picked the nation's capital because I was like, I really relate to Bill. I mean, I was one of these grandiose drunks drinking in my basement, really thinking I'm going to be president of the United States, you know. (laughs) Can't make it out of Jersey, but, you know, I'm going to prove to the world my importance. And And I went down to D.C. with all intentions to get involved in politics and, you know, really be somebody. And the day that I got down there. I was coming to on some dirty bathroom floor surrounded by all the same people doing all the same things again, you know. And I had crossed all these lines of things I thought I'd never do, you know. And by that first time that I'd explained that blackout, I mean, that became the norm, you know. I was used to waking up in parking lots and alleyways. And, you know, at the end of my drinking, I mean, I really identified our literature. I was drinking for oblivion, you know. My life had become so painful, my reality was intolerable to me that i just wanted to be out you know there wasn't trying to catch a buzz anymore there wasn't trying to have a good time or find a man at the bar like you know that was long long gone you know i was just trying to drink the pain away at this time and um and so my first introduction to alcoholics anonymous was first in 2004 um The way I came about that was at the end of my drink, I had a junkie friend that was supplying me a lot of pharmaceuticals. And, you know, we would find secluded, locked up places to drink so I wouldn't get lost. And, uh, you know, this one night... We went on a rooftop in D.C. and Not like a like a rooftop bar, like, not like a nice roof. like an actual roof of a high-rise. And so, if you have ever been in one of those, you know you can access it, and you can't access the building once you close the door. And I thought, well, how brilliant! You know, I can't get lost. Didn't think I could fall. You know, I, I didn't fall off the building. I guess I could have. But um, we were sharing a, a bottle of Aristocrat. You know, and those plastic bottles of vodka. You know, just um, back and forth, and I blacked out. You know, I come to. I'm totally clothed. I'm on a couch tucked in with a blanket. And I'd never been more terrified. You know? <laughs> I, was like, I, I was like, you know, I thought that this, I'd been abducted. Like, this is some weird, weird shit, you know. And uh, this girl comes bouncing over at me. She is barely five feet tall. And she's like this, uh, you know, she, she, I think she was 22 years old at the time. She came bouncing over at me laughing. And i had been a long time since someone was laughing around me. You know, and she uh, handed me a glass of water, and she sat down on the couch across from me, and she didn't, you know, I'm used to coming to being yelled at, screamed at, fought, you know, and uh, she just started talking about herself. She didn't berate me, interrogate me, she just started telling me about herself, how hard she drank, how she could drink grown men under the table. Um, she was talking about drinking in Arlington, waking up naked in front of the White House, and uh, you know, and I started laughing, you know, and I, and there was something about her love for alcohol, her pride in her drinking that just it, it it was disarming, you know. And what I didn't realize that morning what was transpiring was the language of the heart it was one alcoholic talking to another alcoholic, removing these feelings of difference. You know, my whole life, I've prided myself on being this tough, independent Jersey girl. I don't need anyone. You don't know me. I'm complex and tragic. And, you know, I mean, that's, that lasted way into sobriety. Uh, you know. But here she was. You know, within 15 minutes, she had me. You know, she had me, and it's because I identified with her. Cause she wasn't preaching at me. She wasn't yelling at me. She was just sharing. And she had me doing that nod, like, yeah, me too, me too. You know, she started talking about um, the inside stuff too. You know, she was the first person that I heard say she felt like her skin didn't fit. And my God, you know, I, it was like such a beautiful way to put that. I mean, she talked about not being able to fall asleep at night because of things have haunted her. And, you know, she, she was like six months sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. And she found me on that roof last the, the night before and took me in because she saw I drunk. And she 12-stepped me right there and there. You know, she took me to, she had me crying, and I started sharing myself a little bit of it, my story. And, and I was, like, sobbing, you know. And I said, yeah, I, I want to go to meetings. And people have been trying to get me to AA since I was in seventh grade. You know, it was my first, like, you should go to AA. And here she was, you know. And in 15, 20 minutes, she, she sold me. And I heard her boyfriend pick me up that night took me to an AA meeting and unfortunately for people like us, our, or for me, I mean my ego rebuilds quickly, you know what I mean? (laughs) I will be sobbing in desperation in the morning and by noon I'm like, it wasn't that bad, you know, I'm just totally overreacting, you know, and by nighttime when they picked me up, the judgment, the wall was back up. You know, and I went around those meetings and I took your numbers and your big book and read your steps, and I just felt like, no way, Mm-mm, not for me. You know, I just, I saw the word God, it insulted me. You know, I just, I tried that religious route. I saw the word powerless, that insulted me even more. You know, I just didn't, I, I felt sorry for you all. I was like, how sad, you know, how sad for them. So pathetic. And then, you know, just so much, I'm too young, I'm too smart, I'm too capable you know, two, 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 and I went right, right out, you know. I, I took the big book, and I politely nodded and smiled and said, thanks for the information. I, I got it from here, you know. I read this in my past time, and, and I did, you know. I thought that I could control it, and I thought that if I could just get on some pills and manage these emotions, then I wouldn't have to drink, you know. And that lasted like a good week until I was drinking on those pills. And, you know, and I, on the end of my drinking, I ended up picking picking up some harder substances that, that really um, catapulted me into my into my bottom. You know, my last drunk was April twenty third, two thousand five, that was my father's wedding. He was getting remarried. Uh, he was kind of having a shotgun wedding because he had knocked up this woman and they invited me to the wedding, you know? And most people can hear my story at this point and said, Why would you go to your father's wedding? It didn't sound like you guys were really on good terms. And I really do believe that God was using whatever defects I had, you know, to, to save me because I was dead set on going to that wedding and showing people how well I was doing, you know? And I thought to myself, you know, I remember having, you know, these moments that we alcoholics have in the bathroom when we're talking to ourselves. Like, you know, motivational talk. Like, you can do this. You can do this, you know. It's just, just one day, you know. It's just basically eight hours. I, c- I can stay sober for eight hours and show them and hold it together that I'm doing really good. And um, I went up there and I couldn't make it, you know. I mean, before noon, I was putting something in me because uh, I can't take it, you know. I can't take what it feels like to be in my own skin. And, um, And so by the time we got to that reception, that open bar, I mean, it was game on, you know. Uh, I I got a little Jack and Coke because I just wanted to take the edge off, and it awoke that phenomenon of craving that I always got. You know, I needed more. I got thirstier, you know, one after another after another. I'm blacking out. I'm passing out. I'm falling down drunk, and I got carried out of that wedding, you know, humiliating my family yet again, and nowhere near my worst drunk, nowhere near the most I ever drank or anything like that, you know, but for some reason when I came to on April 24, 2005, something inside of me had really broke, and, um, you know, I, I opened the door, I'd, I was like, I woke up in my, like, childhood bedroom that was demolished, I think I I'd become violent that night, they locked me in this room, and I remember opening the door to see my two cousins and saying, you guys want to grab bre- breakfast? And with the smile on my face and the horrified look, you know, like you don't have any idea what you did last night. And, um, you know, they put me on a bus and I took one of those Chinatown to Chinatown buses back down to uh, D.C., and I got phone call after phone call from family members, you know, telling me how disgusting I was, how, you know, broken hearted my father was, you know, how, you know, my mother would be so disappointed in me, and you know, all this guilt trip and really real talk, you know, and usually I would have some sort of rebuttal, you know, usually I'd have some sort of excuse or I could I could parlay this into feeling sorry for me, but for some reason and and you know it's the hallmark characteristic of of the what happened is that I was just tired, you know, I was just bone deep tired, and I didn't have another lie, another game to run, you know, I just shut my mouth and I took it, and I, I didn't use or drink that day, and by the 25th, when I got back down to D.C., um, I, I woke up the next morning, I was going through detox and withdrawal, you know, I had no idea how hooked I was on the, on the things I was taking. I called my junkie friend. I wanted to go to the hospital, and instead she took me to a clubhouse in, in, in North, southeast D.C. I stayed in that clubhouse for four days. The women in there, you know, cradled and rocked me and took care of me. And on the fourth day, I was like, man, it's the drugs, you know. I just got to get off the drugs. If I get off the drugs, and I'll be able to drink normally, you know. I mean, that's how fast, that's how fast it comes on me. And that was my plan, you know. I was like, I'm going to try this wine thing. I've never been like a wine classy drinker you know so I want that was like that was that was what was in my mind and I went back to my apartment with all intentions of just drinking wine like a lady and uh you know this girl Julie ended up knocking on my door that day had no idea I'd been detoxing for four days you know Julie came up and came to my door and asked and you know was crying and said she she's been having a tough time and wanted to go to an AA meeting you know, I mean, seconds and inches. And I'm not like your good neighbor that you ask help from, you know. I mean, she just knew that I had tried every year before. And, um, you know, I, I don't know if it was the example you all set in me or the little bit of God left in me, but I got on the phone, you know. We called, we called the, the AA hotline, and it told us where our meeting was, which was the Foggy Bottom group, which still meets on um, Thursdays. And um, we got a cab and took it to that meeting and caught the last 15 minutes you know and it was a candlelight meeting and i don't know if you guys have that down here but it was really weird you know i was like this newcomer and we we caught we walked in the lights were like off and like the couches were sort chairs were circled up real close and i was like oh hell no you know Mm i've been around this weird you know and i was and i don't and any Week, I would have just turned right around and left you know but I am convinced to this day when I walked into that room I felt a power you know because something inside me broke and I started sobbing you know and this tough girl wasn't a crier you know and I was like wailing in the back of that room um and you know it's, it became an ongoing joke because I, I cry real hard and uh My home group members, when I was new, would call me the scream crier, you know, because I'm not, like, one of these graceful girls that, like, tears are streaming down my face beautifully, you know, I'm like a, you know, I'm convulsing and yelping vowels, you know, and uh, spitting, you know, just so gross, and so, obviously, everyone knew I was new, so they circled me up, and, you know, these two guys from my home group, who are still sober today, uh, were outreaching a, a conference. At that meeting, you know, they they were part of the midtown group, an active young people's group, and they got on their phones, you know, they got on their phones and they started calling woman after woman and made plans for me for the very next day. You know, they said, what are you doing tomorrow? Alexis is going to pick you up for the noon meeting. Anne's going to pick you up for the night meeting. You know, Melissa's going to pick you up the following day. And they just literally lined up plans. And, um, and I just stood there and I cried, you know, and I just cried and cried and cried, and that didn't stop for like seven years. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, and really my home groups, you know, I'm, I'm so grateful that I really got swept up in an active home group. You know, it really bought me time and saved my life. Uh, if, I had, if, it had, if it needed any additional effort, I didn't know if I had the requisite willingness at that time. I was beaten down, I was tired, I was lost and confused, and really these women just picked me up and carried me and babysat me, you know, they took me to meeting after meeting, I mean literally all day, like ships, they would circle me, like they would, the stay-at-home moms would just have their toddlers jumping around me, you know, as they folded their laundry, and I'm like, where am I, you know, <laughs> what's become of my life, and, uh, and I don't know if anything really was seeping in, but seeping in my, my head, you know, but I just knew that they incessantly talked about themselves, you know, and it annoyed me, and, I, and they seemed so happy and shiny. They took me to that Sunday night meeting for the first time, and I was, like, gagged. I was, like, repulsed by, it. it might as well have been a Gap commercial, you know? <laughs> just, like, they plane might as well have been dancing around like a musical. It was just so many people buzzing around and happy, and when you're broken and, and angry and afraid, there is nothing that you repel more from than Joy, you know? And so um that first that Sunday night was when I got my first sponsor. You know, that's the other thing about my home group. Uh, you know, these meetings that I attend is that the first questions that people are gonna ask, are, Do you have a sponsor? Do you have a sponsor? Do you have a sponsor? And I got so tired, I just asked the first woman in front of me, Will you be my sponsor? You know? And uh and she I remember, she took me home from that meeting that night and she said to me, Joyce, you never have to live like this again. And I had no idea what the hell she was talking about, you know. I mean, it just was like, I I was so confused by that statement. Because like our literature describes, I mean, my life had become the only normal one I knew. And I didn't realize that I didn't have to live that way, you know. And that my transformation, my journey, Alcoholics Anonymous, um, you know, has not been uh, roses and rainbows. Uh, I'm, I'm somebody that I feel like I have definitely struggled. I struggled for my first year. Uh, with compulsions and obsessions to drink, I definitely did everything wrong in the big book, you know. Uh, For my early sobriety, I ended up moving back in with my father in Jersey because I wanted to take this, you know, job in New York. It was highly advised not to do that by my sponsor. I did it anyway, and and I almost drank, you know. I I would go to three meetings a day, getting sicker and sicker and sicker, you know. Not wondering why isn't this working, you know? Why why am I not feeling any better? I felt crazier. You know, I think people were sharing it earlier this morning. I mean, I felt suicidal and homicidal. Um, and I, uh, I would literally go home, and, and sometimes I'd pour a drink and just smell it, you know, for relief, which is insane, right? If you're new, don't do that. <laughs> and it shouldn't be around, you know. Um, but I wasn't listening to anybody. I wasn't calling that sponsor anymore. I'd moved back up to Jersey, and I was um, kind of what we were talking about this morning. I mean, I wasn't plugged in anywhere. I was just hopping around, meeting a meeting. I was that hostile newcomer taking the meeting hostage and then leaving before anybody could help me, you know? Um, And I didn't want your help, you know? I wanted to get this through osmosis. I wanted to be poofed and... uh, And no one was doing that for me, you know? And I'm so grateful I fell into this active group in Jersey um, through a series of circumstances, you know? I got connected and and these people saved my life, you know? They brought me back into the literature, they brought me back into the steps, into the book, into service, and told me that AA wasn't a place that I was gonna attend, that it was a way of life, you know? That selfish, self-centeredness was my problem, and that what I needed was a spiritual solution. And that was the only way that I was going to get that solution is that if I went through these 12 steps. And this group is not for everyone. It was a kind of crazy, militant AA group. And I don't even know if it still exists, but uh, just to give you a snapshot, but I got off the train from New York and, you know, I got connected with another sponsor that directed me to this group. And they said, oh, this, this old-timer Jim's going to pick you up at the train station. And I said, okay, how will I know? And they're like, you'll know. So I uh, I got off at the train station in Summit, New Jersey, and I get off, and there's like, you know, one of these like 12-seater passenger SUVs and a bunch of AA people come filing out. And I'm like, there they are, you know. (laughs) And I walk over, and this is my first interaction with him. He hands me a toe tag that you put on dead bodies. You know? And I said, "Uh, what is this for? And he goes, that's if you don't do your fourth step. And I was like, oh my god. You know what I mean? This is crazy. These people are crazy. (laughs) And, uh, you know, but that is the type of tough love and you know um, regimen that, that this crazy newcomer needed. You know, and that day I remember saying, "Are we going to Newark for the meeting or where are we going for the meeting summit?" Or and he goes, "No, we're going to Baltimore." I'm like, "Baltimore? That's like three hours. From, like, but there's a really good speaker speaking down there tonight." And they they put me in the car. You know, they put me in the car and they drove all up and down the East Coast, taking me to great conferences, convention. They took me to the World Convention in Toronto. You know, I didn't have a dime to pay, and these people just chipped in and made sure that I was getting introduced to the strongest AA there was. You know, and it changed my life, and I I have a huge debt to pay, you know. Um, And they also had no tolerance for my self-pity. You know, I'm somebody who can still, I mean, I love self-pity. You know, I I can get up here and, and spin a sad story real fast, you know. And, um, and they just would they had zero tolerance for it. Anytime I'd call about complaining about my dad or how crazy I felt, I'd say, who are you picking up for the meeting? You know, pick up those chairs. You know, wash those coffee cups. And they just got me out of my, that was the message, out of self, out of self, get into service. And um, and they trained my feet, you know. And, uh, and lo and behold, you know, when I started going through these steps with my sponsor, that's, a lot of that insanity started to subside. You know, when I did my fourth and fifth step and really became honest, for the first time with another human being. I mean, I am a shape shifter, multiple lives living, you know, sociopath. Like, you know, I had so many lies, I could barely keep them straight. I could not tell the truth from the false any longer. I had so many false stories out there. I look at my four, I remember looking at my four step when I had a year sober, and like a quarter of the names were like make believe people. You know I mean? I had real <laughs> resentments against fake people. And so that's crazy, you know. And, um, so my, my first fourth and fifth step, you know, was my first honest attempt at, at being, being real with another human being, you know. And I remember, you know, divulging these secrets, these things that kept me up at night and, uh, and being accepted in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, I ended up losing that job in New York and ended up, you know, damaging my relationship with my father sober and then having, coming back down to D.C. You know, and my, I'm so grateful for the men and women in my home group uh, who really taught me how to live. You know, they, they showed me how to be a student. They showed me how to be a worker. They showed me very slowly how to be a daughter. You know, it took me uh, four years to make a direct amends to my dad. You know, um, I, I had direction to write him letters, you know, call mark cards. And I sent those um, every two weeks. And then I started making once a week calls. And then I started getting visits, you know. I started going up to Jersey for a day at a time with a car full of AA people. And then that turned into just me going up there once a month and, and visiting him. And that turned into me spending weekends. And, and, and as I'm growing up and getting sober, my father's changing, you know. He got married, I said, and he, he, had, he, had, he ended up having three children. And I get to be a part of my brothers and sisters' lives. And... Um, and so when I had four years sober, I was finally able to make direct amends. And that was a hard road, you know. I mean, um, I spent a lot of time talking about this relationship because it's something that really dominated my, my life and my sobriety, you know. That resentment almost killed me many times over. I felt justified, and I felt so unwilling that, you know, but he, look at his part. Look at his part. And I remember, um, you know, my old sponsor directed me that, there are no parts in the four step. you know it's, it's, it's my inventory. I resolutely look at where I was wrong and until I could really forgive and focus on my, my damage in that relationship and take responsibility for that, I couldn't really be free here. You know and, and it took years of real prayer and inventory and women with experience you know, walking me down that path. You know I was able to make amends to my mother's grave. There wasn't a single Mother's Day that I, I wasn't drunk. I couldn't be around women. I mean, I had, I had a, a male sponsor for my first seven years. I mean, I had such an aversion to women, and it all stemmed back to this unresolved relationship with my mother. You know, and, and until I really, I wrote, I, read, I wrote a letter, and I read it to my mother's grave, you know, and at Charlie C. out in California actually walked me through this, this amends, and told, gave me a list of directions, you know, that I was to build relationships with women, that I was going to participate in mother-daughter relationships with people I sponsored and my friends, you know, that I was going to honor other people's mothers, that I was going to, you know, take care of my father. And, and you know, gave me a list of directions. And, and that, wasn't, that wasn't, again, you know, there are, I haven't yet to experience this, you know, bright white light experience. You know, even reading that letter, I remember reading it, that grave, getting back in the car and thinking, Nothing happened, you know. But lo and behold, you know, within that next year, I really started developing meaningful sponsorship relationships, you know, with women, that really being able to help and, uh, and connect. And that was the first women in my life were women that I helped, you know. And, that, and within a couple of years, I started learning how to be a real friend, you know. And that took me a long time in this variety. I knew how to help others. I knew how to be helped. But I didn't know how to be equals, you know. It took me, like, you know, five years to understand, even begin to understand what real intimacy was. You know, I'm somebody who lives on the surface. I don't want you to really know who and what I am or what I'm struggling with because I'm afraid you're going to leave me and run away. And, you know, this stuff, these these character defects, these causes and conditions behind my inventory, I mean, this is the stuff that I needed to access. This is the stuff that I needed to shed some light on, you know. And um, I... Uh, did a lot of things wrong in, in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, I've, I've lied, cheated, stolen, dead sober, you know. I've, I've used AA to um, bully. I, you know, there was a long time that I totally misunderstood what sponsorship was. You know, I thought sponsees were like trophies you carried around, like, you know, badges of honor, you know. I thought service positions was were status, you know. I, my, here, here I was in Alcoholics Anonymous and my ego just was in full force, you know, thinking that I still had something to take and get from you all. And I had mixed up the whole message, you know, I was missing it. Here I was, you know, seven days a week at meetings, missing it, missing the whole point of this. You know, I'm supposed to lose myself here. You know, I'm supposed to just give, and I was too busy taking, and I've had to make amends to women I sponsored sober. You know, I've had to make amends to meetings, And, um, and, you know... This idea of being, you know, right sized. And what's necessary for me is to live in 10, 11, and 12. You know, my alcoholism, you know, I still have it. I have a daily reprieve contingent on what I'm doing today. You know, there have been many times in my sobriety where I thought I got the formula, all boxes checked. You know what I mean? I'm a list maker, taskmaster, and I think that if I do all these things, then I'll be okay. You know, and unfortunately, that's just not how the spiritual path works. Is that uh, I need to continue to surrender and give more, you know, and that looks different. And and for the last, um, you know, s- several years, that's looked a lot different in my life. You know, I mean, uh, I've had, a I me. Mean, my life today is unrecognizable. You know, AA got me back in school and taught me how to show up and, and, and learn, and I ended up graduating college, you know. I remember sitting at an old-timer's house as he made me fill out, law school exam you know law school applications you know and i sat there and cried because i was so afraid of failure and and i did i like bombed my bar exam i got i didn't get accepted to nine out of the ten law schools i applied to it i got into one you know and they're like you're going and i was like i don't want to go you know and i'm like the whole time i mean the whole message i can say is that you all have given me a better life than i deserve you know that i would have given myself you know and i ended up going to that law school and as a result of Alcoholics Anonymous showing up, you know, um, three years later, I got sworn in to be a state's attorney in Maryland. You know, and here I am representing the state of Maryland. And God damn, do they know who I am? You know, like, don't tell them, don't tell them, you know. Um, And that's all, I mean, that is all a direct result of Alcoholics Anonymous, you know. I mean, left to my own devices, uh, I would do nothing, nothing. Fear paralyzes me on a daily basis, you know. It's only because of you all that I put one foot in front of the other, you know. That father who I had a broken relationship with, you know, five years ago almost, you know, walked me down the aisle, you know, at my wedding and, you know, told me he was proud of me. You know, just last month, we took a family vacation, you know, like all together. And what I've gotten here is an amazing experience where, you know, I get to have a whole new life. You know, I don't need to be a prison of my past. I can have a brand new whole life right here and with you all, provided that I do the work. You know, and I'm still someone. I mean, just earlier to this morning, I mean, I was all jammed up with inventory from this week. I've been self-obsessed with work. I mean, you know, that type of obsession where you can hardly hear in a meeting because you're just so in your mind about what needs to get done. And, you know, there's there's these things that still plague me. You know, lots of areas that I still need to work on. And it humbles me because it, it reminds me that, Um, There's no destination. There's no finish line here. You know, I just need to continue to put one foot in front of the other and try to get out of the way, you know. And, um, you know, just my last thing I'm going to talk about is sponsorship. You know, I um, had the privilege of working with other women. And like I said, I misunderstood the sponsorship. I thought it was all about my ego and really, you know, just working with newcomers, period. Whether you have the sponsor title or not, you know, that is what, um, you know, keeps me on this path. Because the longer I've stayed sober, the busier I've got. You know, life gets full of children and a job and all these responsibilities that take me away from Alcoholics Anonymous. And I feel justified. Oh, I don't need to go to the meeting. I don't need to go to that conference. Or I don't need to say yes. You know, but when, when I'm working with newcomers, I have to be an example. You know, I mean, honestly, even having Crystal with me. You know, I am somebody, I forgot who said it this morning, about, you know, I think it was... Um, Debbie who was talking about my meeting etiquette I'm mean, being guilty as charged you know I'm perpetually late and I you know I thought that was a time management thing and then my sponsor was like no you're just selfish you know <laughs> you just care more about you than everybody else and I was like, oh is that what that is you know and and Crystal, I mean, she's caught me several times where I'm like, oh, my God, I got to go to the meeting, like, you know, and sprinting down the halls, like nearly knocking people over to get here as suggested five minutes beforehand. And, you know, there's still a lot of areas of my life that need a lot of improvement, you know, a lot of maturing and growing up. And I hope I can stay humble and small and realize who and what I am, how far I come, but how far I still need to go. You know, so I'm so grateful for this opportunity to share this weekend with you all. I definitely have needed it, um, so thanks for letting me share.